0: Hey there! Welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts Tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy, too. So sit back and enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Blockhead. It's been a while. Uh, I've been busy. Uh, we've we've had a lot to do here around the house as summer has uh, begun, and there's a lot of uh, preparation and a lot of projects that have waited all winter uh, for our attention. So that's kept me away from uh, the recording booth, <laughs> the recording booth, and from the editing uh, table as well. So, uh, but... Uh, Nevertheless, we do have another episode. It is the third part of our extensive discussion with Lex Fajardo, the cartoonist of the wonderful series of graphic novels for all ages, Kid Beowulf as well as the senior editor at schultz studios out in santa rosa california so our conversation uh, if you've listened to the first two parts you know our conversation has is, is uh covered a lot of ground in schultz territory and uh, this time around is no different we talk a lot about charles schultz we talk a lot about kid Well, finally we get to lex's work and talk about that for a bit, as well as touching on uh, other classic comic strips just like uh, Prince Valiant and uh, Dennis the Menace as well. So I hope you'll find this an interesting discussion and worth the wait. I think it is. Just to let you know, the first 10 minutes of our discussion is all about dogs. Uh, there was an incident earlier in the uh, in the month where one of my dogs, one of my two dogs, Duncan, was taken ill quite suddenly just, as, uh, just the day before Lex and I were going to have our conversation. And so the first 10 minutes, we talk a little bit about that. And we talk about Lex's dogs uh, and our mutual love of dogs. So if dogs are not your cup of tea, if you're a cat person, or if uh, you that's that's just not something you want to listen to. You might want to jump ahead 10 minutes uh, just to let you know, Duncan is recovering still. So uh, maybe I'll talk about that a little more at the end of, of all of this. But uh, hang around for the end because I do have a little bit of an announcement. It's not earth shattering in any way, but just something to share with you, uh, those of you who've been listening for a little while. So stick around uh, at the end. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Uh it is long. It's a big, extended episode. It's like another giant-sized issue. And um, maybe you want to listen to it in a couple of different sessions, but uh, I think it's quite interesting and well worth the wait. And then uh, we'll be moving ahead in the next couple of months with some new interviews so uh, with uh, different folks, so uh, be ready for that. I will be hanging around here until the end of the episode, and I'll catch up with you then. Here is Lex and myself on a recent Saturday morning. Conversing about comics and Charlie Brown and Kid Beowulf too. Once again, avoid legal snags by telling people they're being recorded. Sure. <laughs> you're being recorded, Lex. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, that's fine. Uh, we had a little snafu here yesterday. My my, not a little snafu. It was scary. My, we have two dogs and um, mm. we have a big piece of property. And a lot of weeds grow up on the property and stuff. And I was weed whacking uh, the other day, and um, I cut up some of the stuff. And it turns out some of the stuff that I cut up is highly, highly poisonous to dogs. Oh, really? Yeah, there's stuff called poke weed. And this is what we think happened was our dog runs along this fence because there's a dog on the other side of the fence that he loves and he, he obsesses over. So he runs along this fence all the time unbeknownst to me, I'd weed whacked some of this poke weed and it was open and exposed. Now, if the dog gets this on their skin or on their paw and they lick their paw or something, it's so highly toxic that they could literally die just from that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had no idea about this stuff. We were at the hospital all day yesterday, the, the animal hospital. We went there once and we thought he was going to start doing better, but no, he was getting worse. So he had to go back and it was all day and really scary because he was in, obviously in real distress and yeah, we couldn't figure out what it was, and the doctor couldn't figure out what it was. You know, I was afraid it was bloat. So uh, they did some x rays, and the x rays were negative. Thank goodness for that. And uh, but we ended up leaving, you know, getting him uh, some medication to relieve his stress, but we didn't know what it was. Lo and behold, today Deb remembered. didn't remember she started looking stuff up last night and uh, she found this article about pokeweed which she had read before but she couldn't remember what it was and then she went looking for it this morning and found it and there it was i had chopped it up not all of it but a bunch of it and uh right where he runs and i'm 90 percent certain from all of the symptoms that he had, that's what it was. So
1: can he get antibiotics or how do you, how do you,
0: I don't even know how it's treated when you know what it is. You know, yesterday we didn't know what it was. Right. So, um, maybe it is antibiotics. I don't really know how they, they treat it. Um, he's past the danger point. He's still kind of, you know, he's still recovering. He's, he's, he had a lot of uh, medication yesterday that would make him drowsy. So he's still kind of drowsy today, but he's reacting, you know, to things like the mailman and, and the UPS delivery man and stuff. And so he's, he's better that way right now. He's on prednisone for any swelling and, uh, to, to help with that. And he's taken, believe it or not, he's taken Zantac for his stomach. Yeah. Oh boy. But anyway, so we're, the doctor thinks we're past any, you know, point of, of d- real danger that now he's just gotta, just going to take a little time yeah. or a little guy. uh the re- The way we got to know this is our other dog threw up at three o'clock in the morning. And so we figured, you know, thinking about it this morning, something must have gotten to both of them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so anyway, that's what led us to the, uh, article on pokeweed and, and Deb went looking for it and lo and behold, there it was. So, uh. Anyway, oh,
1: yeah, i would never heard of it. And um, what what are what are the breeds?
0: Um, well, Zook, uh, our our older dog, Zook is uh, older by about six months. Zook is an Australian Shepherd, and oh. she is uh, she, she's literally like a human being. You know, she's <laughs> a per, She's a real big personality, and all of her her qualities are human qualities, you know, right. she gets jealous. She's, you know, um, temperamental. <laughs> She's demanding, um, dunk, Duncan is our other dog. I, I also call him pumpkin. Cause he's orange. He's, he's part chow and uh, something else. And I'm not sure what it, what it is, but he was a stray who just arrived here fortunately oh. for us. He, he sort of landed in the, in the backyard behind the barn and, uh, uh, stayed And, um, he, he turns out he was six, about six months younger than Zook, and he stayed because of her, I think initially, Mm -hmm. and they became playmates because it's perfect age. So they've grown up together and, uh, we've had, we've had both of them about 10 years now. So they're great. Yeah. I love, we love them to death. You know, they're our kids. So yeah, (laughs) I know you have dogs too, or a dog anyway.
1: Yeah, no, I had, uh, I had, you know, when you find that perfect dog that is that is uh as my wife likes to call him your heart dog and that was border collie australian shepherd mix uh his name was loki uh-huh. and i adopted him i think it was 2013 and then uh the worst thing in the world i lost him that we lost him to cancer back in uh oh, november of this I'm last so, year oh yeah. I'm
0: so sorry yeah
1: it, just, yeah it was just awful it was just you know i miss him every day i think about yeah, him every sure. day he's
0: just oh, the best yeah.
1: and then um and then recently we we dipped our toe back into the 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 well of of because you just need dogs in your life you know at least yeah. i do and you uh, we too. found a, a border collie pyrenees mix um mm-hmm. uh black and white and his name is oso Oh and okay. he's uh, he he talked about personality he's got a lot of personality and uh he's about nine months so i've never really experienced puppiness before and <laughs> um he is definitely a puppy um and, uh, yeah, I don't know if you recall last episode we were recording, there there was uh, a, a, a noise in the background, and it sounded like gnawing. And I recall turning back, because Oso was in the, the office with me, <laughs> and he was gnawing on the leg of my grandfather's chair, like this <laughs> antique chair. And I was like, oh, my God. And then it was just one of those hilarious things where I'm trying to get his attention <laughs> so I can get my wife to get him out so he doesn't re- destroy anything else. Oh, my God. Uh, but he's he's really fun. Like we, yeah. uh, we, we we're we're excited to see where his 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 personality goes. I mean, it's already there, a lot of it is there. He's very vocal um, and he's very big. And hopefully, he won't get too much bigger. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, we just we adore
0: dogs. They're yeah, just terrific. Yeah, yeah, we do too. We do too. We have dogs and cats, and and uh, they're our kids, and uh, they are they do fill our lives with uh, joy and uh <laughs> concern you know i mean especially when they're chewing on chairs and stuff yes. like that yeah but that's okay you know you can give up a chair or two for a dog yeah uh, yeah i've learned to like, give up a lot of things when i, came yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I know. So. you know <laughs> oh my gosh oh well well okay so um, where shall we begin this time? Um, you know, before we get into talking about Kid Beowulf, one thing came to, to, to mind that, uh, arose from our last discussion and for me anyway, and that's because I'm a big fan of the Dennis the Menace comics by mm-hmm. Al Wiseman and Fred O'Toole. And I was just thinking afterwards, you know, how different Hank Ketchum's attitude was towards Dennis and towards, uh, comic book production, um, versus Charles Schultz. You know, um, Hank Ketchum just sort of dove in headfirst. He he hired these guys who worked for him. You know, he paid them out of his, his pocket. And um, he really seemed to take a very strong interest in all of the production of all of the stories. They had to be approved by him, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he exerted a kind of quality control over all of them. Oh, interesting. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, that, and, that, that, that falls in line with what uh, my understanding of how Schultz approached it too like like uh from what i've read jim sasseville and dale hale they would pitch their ideas oh. um uh-huh. and uh and he would sort of you know give them a thumbs up and then you know occasionally he would correct a, a, a charlie brown head but mm-hmm. um jim sasseville is quoted as saying like he felt like a um sort of just like a, a an uncle to those characters because of the amount of. Uh, uh, just responsibility in drawing them, but also the back and forth that he had with with Sparky. And, and um, I wonder, did, did the Dennis the Menace start around the same time? Those those comics
0: early 50s, uh, okay. not too long after the um, comic strip debuted, I think comic strip debuted in 51. Okay. And uh, I think the comics were out by 53 or 54. It's really amazing how Ketchum merchandised Dennis uh, very quickly. I mean, the television show, I think, was in the mid to late 50s. So it wasn't too long after Dennis had appeared that it was already being, you know, uh, manifesting in different media and uh, like comics and like comic books and uh, and television. And I wonder if it's the single panel uh, nature of Ketchum's comic, his original comic that allows for the comic books to really find their own way and their own territory. I mean, it leaves a lot open and a lot to be discovered by, Mm -hmm. you know, Al Wiseman and, and Fred O'Toole and, and, uh, and they really do open up that world in a way that's very much in sync with what Ketchum's vision was and and elaborate on it i always personally always found that the comic book versions of dennis the menace were much more to my liking than the comic strip because the comic strip is only a little taste you know even the Sunday. you can
1: never quite get started with the single panel comic strip it's just always uh you you, uh yeah hard to build a rhythm with with reading those in a big batch.
0: You just get a gag, right? Yeah. And and so there's yeah. really not too much in terms of developing personality. Uh, and I love Ketchum's drawing. I mean, Ke- oh. I thought Ketchum was a fantastic guy. Yeah. I'm
1: song. glad you mentioned him because he's, you know, he's up there with Schultz and Johnny Hart and that, mm-hmm. that their oh man, his inking is so
0: beautiful. Oh my gosh, isn't it though? Yeah. I mean, when you look at his, the rhythm of his line and the exquisite variation in his line and the simplicity of it. Uh, he was a real master and, uh, you know, nobody who has worked on the strip, uh, since, and, and I'm talking about the syndicated strip has even come close to what I know, it's,
1: it's tough to look at some of those Sundays, uh, yes. every now and then. Um, I know. Yeah. and, uh, and, you know, from what I've recalled, cause I, I read that merchant of Dennis book ages uh, ago, but, um, uh, he was, he also made his way, or maybe he was a native, uh, he lived in Monterey, just the, the, right? the. South end of, of the Bay Area. Right. And um, I don't know off the top of my head if he had a relationship with, with Schultz. I know I think they were both golfers, so maybe they yeah. played a couple rounds. But that would have been, I'll have to look for that because um, both of those guys were just terrific. And oh, it, yeah, absolutely. Such different ways.
0: Would have been interesting to hear a conversation between the two of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because I wonder what they, what they talked about. Both of them were really at the pinnacle of their profession. And both of them, I don't know how many papers Dennis the Menace was in, Uh, you know, certainly not 2000, but it was up there and, uh, you know, remains up there today. It's still one of those signature strips that's uh, syndicated yet today in the newspaper, but it is really just um, a shadow of its former self and uh, Ketchum's illustration, which is, you know, I looking at it now, you don't look at it so much like those fanographic collections. They didn't get very far with those. I think there's only two or three volumes, but, uh, yeah. maybe they didn't sell, but you know, the, the strip doesn't develop in the same way. There's no room for development. Right. In a single panel strip like that. But the reason for looking at them is for Hank Ketchum's beautiful line work. It's just, you know, exquisite, uh, unmatched in a lot of ways by anybody else. Interesting. Al Wiseman took a very different kind of approach to drawing Dennis in the comic books. He it looks like Dennis. It it it's looks like Alice and Henry, but um there is a kind of more architectonic kind of quality to Al Wiseman's work. Um, you know, draftsman like quality that's very deliberate and very contained. And um, his sense of he had a great sense of architecture, but it looks very architectural. Uh, whereas the kind of looseness and uh, flowing quality that Hank Ketchum had was very, di- very different, but it suits the comic books and it suits Dennis really, really, really well. I always thought, whereas yeah. I don't think I'd ever feel like, I think I can, you can say safely say that the Dennis comics are, you know, elaborate very successfully on, on, um, uh, what Ketchum was doing, but the Dell comics that are reprinted in the book, I wouldn't say that they open up peanuts in as successful a way. I mean, I, I think Pe- it, from my point of view, anyway, I think peanuts was so well-defined as a world and so well encapsulated by four panels and by the Sunday that it, it, it really didn't need to be opened up anymore than no. it, it yeah. was already, you know? So there wasn't a lot of room for Sasseville or Hale, uh, as good as they were, um, to elaborate on the way Fred O'Toole and Al Wiseman did.
1: Yeah, that you know that sort of leads me to thinking about um, part of our discussion before, and I think why maybe those Dell comics weren't as successful, and even you know to, to a certain degree the comics that that we did with Boom, and, and and the the thing that I love so much about comics and cartoonists and comic art is the is the, I guess with any art, but in particular with the case with comics, when it's done well, like you get that. Um, creator's personality on the page and it's really very hard to replicate that by other hands if they're so well you know characters are so well delineated the way they are that in schultz's world um and so it's uh it's a it's a challenge because i think as a reader you're going there for schultz's voice so when you see it you know impersonated by others it's just it's lesser than and um yeah
0: and 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 that's that's... always
1: just the challenge i think for for the the hardcore fan who 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 goes for for that specifically.
0: Oh, I'm, we're on the same page there. I I you know when i go to prince valiant uh i i go to see hal foster and i enjoyed john Cullen murphy to an extent and by the way there's a wonderful book out by john colin murphy's son i don't know if you've seen it it's a uh, about the i uh, can't remember the title right now but it's it's a wonderful little memoir about mm. the community of cartoonists who lived in and around westport connecticut uh, And john colin murphy was one of them and there was a group of others too mort walker i think was there at the time and so anyway it's a very interesting book, but and I enjoyed John Colin Murphy, but he wasn't Hal Foster. Yeah. And uh, I think it had an allegiance to Hal Foster because Murphy worked off of Hal Foster's pencil uh, sketches, which were almost as detailed as Foster's final pages. <laughs> um, they're beautiful from what I saw.
1: Reprinted. It's funny you mentioned Prince of Valley because I'm, I'm making my way through the first fanographics
0: oh, volume,
1: yeah. the trilogy of the those first few years. It is beautiful and it's astounding it? to see I, I look at those pages and i just kind of sit in awe and wonder like how how what where was his source like mm-hmm. these days we've got google images if you need like a three-quarter yeah. you know view in dawn of a castle in in a in a <laughs> in a pond you can get that you know or if, uh but he's creating these vistas and these characters and uh that are just so perfectly rendered and um and then the the minutia, like the, the the straps that the characters are, you know, for the swords or the sandals, or even when, when Val is out in the fens and he's fishing and he's like constructing a fishing pole, it's like so beautifully specific uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and lived in. And I actually loved it so much, I, I got a, a bio of Hal Foster and started just to read that. And, um, oh. and he was a... From a little I've read so far, he you know grew up in Canada and was a yeah. a guy who lived in the wilderness. So he put all that in his work. It's just, but I'm really enjoying his his Prince Valiant. It's just
0: oh, dazzling. It's, it's, it's great. You know, uh, it is. It, I I've collected. Prince Valiant since I was a kid, since I was a teenager. And I used to get those nostalgia press books that came out in the seventies as lambasted as they are today. But I've collected all of the, every year for my birthday, my wife gets me a Prince Valiant book. So I've got like, I don't know, um, 17 of them, I think so far anyway. So I've kept up with it all the way through the sixties right now. And, uh, it never, it, it never flags. You know, it never flags. The storytelling is just so great. Mm -hmm. The personalities of the characters are so well-developed they are indeed archetypes but they are more than that and uh you know uh particularly Alita is a really interesting character uh, as she develops but Val is is terrific and his kid Arn, is great and his kids are all of his kids are great as they grow up it's um Foster was a wonderful storyteller and he
1: really was yeah that's the really other thing just like the the episodes just so they move so beautifully from one to the next and a yeah. and there's you know, maybe a Sunday page for some downtime, but uh, at least the, what I've read so far, Val, you know, he, he, he's already been in Rome and yep. he's got his, his, his pals Gawain and um, – is it Gawain? Gawain oh, and, the, at, and yep. Tristram. Um, yep. mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And the writing is terrific. And uh, I love that they're always it's – just, it's just great swashbuckling fun. It's just sort of like
0: Errol Flynn on the page. It, it it is Errol Flynn on the page, but it's deeper than Errol Flynn. Oh because yeah, because it's a yeah. family epic as well as it as as it is uh, a, a romance and an adventure, and it is romance and it is adventure, and it's very much of its own period and the archetypes, you know, uh, both in terms of gender and whatnot may be traditional, but that all that being said, it remains. A, a fantastic story And it it has The characters rise above You know, iconic forms They they are real, they become real people And Foster, you know, for a long Time, uh, Hal Foster was lamb- was Lambested, that's my word of the day I guess, Hal Foster, Foster was Criticized by people for not Being a great story, oh, you know The illustrations are great, but the story doesn't get Me, and you'd hear that over And over again, and I think what's wonderful about the fanographics collections is they rehabilitate foster as a storyteller and reveal him to be a magnificent storyteller mm-hmm. and uh he's writing a, a, an extraordinary epic and a, a, a grand novel you know uh, in in the largest sense of the word uh in those pages and and it goes on for you know how many years did he work on it from what 39 to into the early, late 70s, early early 80s, somewhere in there. So I was
1: going to so, ask, when, did, when did, he, did he pass it off in, to, well, Duke, it off to you, he, Colin Murphy? Or was there a... He passed, how did that work?
0: Yeah, he passed off to John Colin Murphy in, I think, early, the early 70s. And uh, Murphy John Colin Murphy took over as an illustrator for it and at that time, after doing assistant work with uh, Foster for quite some time. And... Then, uh, I think what happened then was Foster retired entirely from both, you know, he had retired from the artwork, although he, from what I understand from this book, uh, it seems like he kept his hand in by doing these wonderful pencil illustrations, you know, layouts for, for the, uh, Sunday pages that gave Colin Murphy a very strong guide to work from. And then he retired from, I think he retired from, the uh, uh, writing uh, maybe by 1980 or something like that. And um, off the top of my head, I don't recall when he passed away, but he was, I think he was in his nineties. But John Colin Murphy's son came on board to write uh, the story. And he worked with his dad for a, a number of years and, uh, and they produced, I think a good body of work. It'll be interesting to see it collected by fanographics Uh, I'm cause I've never, you know, I've only read it in snippets. I've never read it collected. So the John Murphy stuff, um, John, John, Cullen, Mur- John Cullen Murphy's style is a looser, you, you know, uh, style, both Foster and Murphy come out of illustration. And, uh, Colin Murphy worked on, I think, a strip called Big Ben Bolt for many years. It was a boxer strip. Okay. And, uh, and and so they both come out of the same place, the same kind of naturalism. But Foster, I think, is a a more classical illustrator than Murphy was, and uh, I, I think more successful. And and is again, as you're saying, you go to the to the strip for the voice of the author, the creator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's always bothered me with comic books, you know, um, the way that say Spider-Man becomes a property instead of a strip that was done and created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, you know, we get a property that's done by a million people. And while it's fun and interesting to see different takes on it, uh, and each person might add something to it. Um, you know, the original always speaks most clearly and most effectively, I think.
1: Right. To, what uh, uh close the loop on the prince valiant uh mm-hmm. the fellow who's working on it now i think his last mm-hmm. name might be yates he mm-hmm. also lives in this part of the world i think oh in really the, the bay area yeah I've, oh. I've met him at a at a show or two and um and he's there working on the prince valiant pages and it wow. looks terrific so it's just uh um fun to 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 see all these these great talented folks working
0: you know, on it. Yeah, they they are talented. Um, I kind of feel like he's mismatched to Prince Valiant myself, and and um, I'll, t- I'll tell you why. It's specifically because he uses a lot of chiaroscuro. It's a high a high contrast approach to illustration. Uh, a lot of shadows, a lot of deep shadows in the work. Mm. And Foster's world is a world of light. And even when it's shadow, uh, it's not. As deeply saturated with ink as Yeats' work seems to be, and uh, so I always feel like I'm looking at a different strip when I look at at Prince Valiant, and I can understand why that might be an approach that someone w- might want to take. For me, it just it it doesn't give me what Foster was about and right. Prince Valiant is about. Um,
1: well, the it, other thing that that uh, like you know you said it's a comic strip of light, and it's also those. Uh, the reprints, the, mm-hmm. the 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 way that he did color mm-hmm. is really yeah. modern too. Because these yeah. were printed, at least what I'm looking at, is printed in the 30s, and he's doing just these beautiful, um, uh, you know, watercolors and and sunsets, and um, the forests are are vibrant. Um, it looks like you know comic strip Technicolor. It's just uh, oh yeah,
0: man, he he's able he able to achieve. Well, you know, it's really interesting. He comes from a period of time where illustrators, you know, that naturalistic approach to illustration deeply steeped in, in the kind of naturalism and 19th century painting, uh, you know, the Hudson river school and and Thomas Eakins and all of that it, Winslow Homer, it's deeply embedded in, you know, American painting and American illustration in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, Foster comes from that school, you know, of, mm-hmm illustration and there's a little bit of NC Wyeth in there and you know the, the one one of the wonderful things about the fanographics books is that they have all this stuff that you know fosters uh um commercial work his work in illustration in the back pages and so you can watch you can see what he did as an illustrator and he was a terrific you know uh illustrator with the whole range of skills you know not only was he great with figure drawing, but he was great at landscape and, and drawing boats and, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, props and things of that nature. He was, he had the whole, you know, toolbox there. And, uh,
1: that's the other uh, thing. Well, I look at those pages with envy because for me, it's just always a struggle, uh, to the drawing part. And, and it looks so effortless, uh, his castles, his Viking ships, right down to the little details of the straps on the sandals. It just, right it looks so perfectly lived in and and um exact and
0: well uh, i think was, this goes to something that i encountered as a student uh, in you know a painting student years ago is that along the lo- along the way in education in art education particularly after modernism there was a kind of move away from classical training and away from so that if you wanted to learn perspective Uh, you know, and really get into it and deal with it. Uh, you sort of had to teach yourself, you know, rather than when I was in art school, rather than be taught by anybody, because those rules were sort of being tossed out or had been tossed out for a while. And so uh, you know, perspective was something that you were left to learn on your own. And sometimes it's really hard to get a handle on when you're just learning it by yourself, you know, not teaching it in, in art school, uh, the way they, they used to, I mean, they really, I think the training that somebody like Foster had at Chicago Art Institute or, uh, elsewhere. And, and plus it was the worldview at the time. Uh, it just hammered it home so that all those illustrators, if you look at the illustrators who came up, during foster's time and who worked in you know all kinds of what we would say throwaway you know kinds of ephemeral uh, works like uh, pulp magazine covers the the artists who did pulp magazine covers man they were they sometimes they paint those things overnight and they just they had chops down you know just yeah. amazing and um Uh, you know, I'm always flabbergasted by first of all, like you were saying, they didn't have Google images, you know, so how did they pull together, you know, enough material to, to draw the right revolver, you know, or the right right car or for, for this particular scene and do it in 24 hours so that they could get it to, you know, uh, to whomever they had to get it to. Uh, the next day or the, a couple days later after it dried or something yeah. you know I mean it was it's amazing they really all of them that stuff was really ingrained in them you know all of that classical stuff
1: well and, and the notion that reminds me of, of going back to when I was mentioning that letter I got from Johnny Hart it's just it's, it's sort of he was telling me to learn how to draw and then learn how, and then from that you can you can cartoon and I, and I wonder if that's sort of been the bridge that's you know, not with all modern artists, but there's definitely a trend when, in modern cartooning where there's there's less of the draftsmanship, I think, quality that we keep talking about when we think of Ketchum and Schultz and Walt right. Kelly and Hal Foster. And yeah. It's, um, it's more about delivering the gag and, um, it, you know, and it, and maybe that's, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak ill of, of, of current comic landscape but for me it's I'm, I'm drawn to the uh to the illustration as much as the, the storytelling they work in tandem um, yeah
0: they do work in tandem I, th- I think it's interesting to think about um it, in some sense there's it's a post postmodern kind of approach to cartooning in the sense that okay we're two, three generations removed from the source, you know, and if the source material is, you know, 19th century painting originally for somebody like Hal Foster, well, we're far removed from that. We're looking, you know, Foster is distant from us, right? So Mm -hmm. particularly kids growing up now, they're going to be looking, a lot of them are not even looking at Western comics. They're looking at manga and things, but, um, you know, you go to that material, that's where you learn to draw. I learned to draw from a variety of different people but i looked at when i was trying to do naturalistic illustration which is not my forte um you know neil adams was god when i was growing oh, up sure yeah. Way yeah. Eric clapton was god for a guitarist, and <laughs> uh you know and so it was looking to him um i found my personally i found my strengths were not in that arena and uh except when i'm working with charcoal where charcoal makes a lot of sense to me but trying to imitate Adam's approach to ink was always vexing to me. Um, But I found in cartooning, you know, my proclivities and natural abilities leaned away from that direction more towards a cartooning took me a long time to accept that. And sometimes it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a balancing act of, of finding of, of both what you love and what you're influenced by, but then also finding where your natural skills lie because all of us are different, right? And each right. Of us has, has a different strength. And, uh, and what you want to do is you don't want to imitate those who've come before you want to sort of put it all together, but find a way to enhance and, and to, you know, magnify your natural strengths, whatever, whatever direction they might be in. So it
1: it reminds me. So there's uh, – on Twitter recently, there's been this Venn diagram that's been uh, retweeted in the, the comics vein of Twitter, and it's got – it's two circles. On On the left side, there's a circle that, that says, um, great at drawing, and then on the right side, it says, great at writing. And mm-hmm. then in between, where they intersect, it says, okay, at comics. And then there have <laughs> been so many of my uh, friends who's like, yep, that's about right. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I can, I can say. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that is the idea, right? I mean, you know, what was it uh, Steve Conley brought up when we were talking? A couple of incompetencies make a competency or something like that. Yeah. Cartoon. And Schultz,
1: you know, I recall coming across uh, quotes where Schultz says the same thing. He's like, you know, if I could, if I was a great writer, I would have been a novelist. If I was a great painter, I would have been like N.C. Wyeth. But you know, you find the medium that that your talents are best suited to. And thankfully for us, for him, it was comics.
0: Yeah, and and I think that I think it's true. You find a, you where um where am I where are my interests? You know, and and where do I feel most at home? And where do I feel like I can express myself most fully? And You know, I've dabbled with writing, uh, in prose before and, and it always, oh, well, how do we turn this into a comic? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it's always, uh, it always comes back to that and I've got to be able to, it's interesting for me. Um, there's always been a narrative element to my drawing. There's always been a comic aspect to my writing and it it doesn't matter what it is. So it's got to, for me, and I think for a lot of us, it just has to be comics, you know, it's like, because comics are. They're not one or the other, and I don't necessarily think that. While you know, in industry, they're divided right into the two aspects. I think right. a cartoonist, say you or not, or, or I are sitting, we're putting these things together. They're they're innately comics. I mean, I don't think we break it apart. Yeah, well, you got to sit down and write the dialogue, and and you got to work out where the word balloons are, and and all you got to do all these separate elements but you're always thinking in terms of comics. You're not thinking in terms of illustration. You're not thinking in terms of, of prose. You're thinking in terms of comics. Not yeah. And that's why I,
1: I that. always gravitate to those that write and draw their own material. Like, yeah. like we've been talking about and, yeah. you know, uh, in particular folks like Jeff Smith or mm-hmm. Jay or like when they're, when it's, when it's, um, yeah, that, that person doing everything on the page, uh, I just feel like that's the best you know version of it. I don't know, that's what I love. Uh
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think I see that in your work too. And actually this brings us to Kid Beowulf, because this is what I've been hoping that we'd, we talk about as well is, is your work and, uh, Kid Beowulf. And when I look at Kid Beowulf, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful series. And, uh, I, of course I've only read a little bit on Go Comics and I've read uh, The Rise of El Cid. So I haven't read The Song of Roland yet, but I'm looking forward to that. And the first book, what was the first book called? uh Bloodbound Oath. Bloodbound Oath. Okay. And that's that's the one I've I've seen bits of on uh, Go Comics I think, right?
1: Yeah, that one that one's running rerunning on on Go Comics.
0: Yeah. Okay. So one of the, uh, speaking about this and and what you're talking about I can see and tell me if I'm wrong Carl uh, Bark's uh, coming through mm. some of your work. And um you mentioned Herge uh, and um Tintin. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of Asterix, and I don't know if I'm. I'm joking. no, no.
1: That's absolutely right. The Carl Barks, uh, that would probably be through the Jeff Smith influence, because I know mm-hmm. he's always cited Carl Barks, and I've read some of the Duck comics, but I haven't dived into him as much. Okay. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, I would. I would name Tintin, Jeff Smith, and Asterix are my okay. my three main influences, and Asterix in particular, because that was the first I remember. Being a kid and and being handed this Asterix the Legionary graphic album, and it was that moment where your brain explodes. You're like, "What is this? <laughs> How to do this?" And uh, so, I absolutely absolutely love um, Uderzo's art and what mm. what that whole tradition of European comics. And so, that's very much the idiom I'm kind of working in or trying to
0: to figure out. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, what was it about, well, okay, when did you encounter Asterix and, and how did that happen? Because, you know, in the United States, we really don't have, I mean, Asterix is even today, right? You go to Barnes and Noble and you look over the graphic novels, they don't, they, maybe they'll have one copy of uh, an Asterix book, but.
1: Yeah, not as many people know that. about it as I thought they should, because you're right. I mean, the, uh, you talk about print runs, the most recent Asterix book, uh, mm-hmm. The it's always an event when when they a announce it and then and then a year later when it comes out and the print runs for those things are like I think the last one was thirty four million yeah uh, across wow. multiple languages I mean it is it is uh, a behemoth in uh, overseas so um, but there are pockets of people you know stateside who who grew up with it and and love it and um, and uh, yeah it was a family friend who I think I was maybe. Eight, eight or nine, who knew I liked comics, and, and he had a collection, mm-hmm. and he and he handed me his uh, yellowed ver- copy of um, Asterix the Legionary, mm-hmm. and it's one of those those moments I'll never forget because you know he took it down from the bookshelf and it the sunlight caught it just right and he sort of and I'm sort of pseudo blinded by the the rays coming in from the from the library and he's and he hands it down to me and it and it you know uh, he tells me about this little Gaul and his and his fat friend obelix and they fight the romans and um and so it it, you know a it looks beautiful um Mm -hmm. wonderfully cartooned and then the time period because i was um a nut for um you know you know greek and roman um mythology and i read that and, and the history component really spoke to me um so every now and then when i'm at a comic convention there will be um somebody who comes by and say, Oh, did you, did you grow up reading Asterix? And, and of course, yeah, it's, 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 if you know, it's, it's fairly blatant on the page. And I even have a couple of characters. Um, there are these two, um, Oaths that kind of travel to the different countries with that Beowulf and Grendel, um, go to. And they're, they're kind of these bounty hunters that are going after them. And they're, yes. they're very much my nod to Asterix and Obelix, but sort of an inverted, oh. um, and every now and then I'll, I'll pop in little references. Uh, I think there's a character in book two who I named Argo, and um, and that was the name of the publishing company that <laughs> published them. And I remember looking at that little, you know, reading it as a kid and like, what does that mean? And, and so anyway, um, I populate little Easter eggs from the Asterix series. And also, you know, going back to Schultz, I always put in a little zigzag uh, somewhere on a piece of pottery or <laughs> uh, something, you know, hidden in the background. Yeah. Um, just a little tip of the hat.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. It's nice to be able to pay tribute to your influences that way. Yeah. Even down to, um, you do your own coloring.
1: I have a colorist and we work, we go back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so he'll do a, a, a pass, uh, just sort of filling in just flats. And then I'll, I'll sort of go over those to get, the stuff on model and i send it back to him to do the really mm-hmm. uh to bring it to life and put in the shadows and okay. but the the coloring is also intended to be less um i feel like there's a there's a trend in comics these days especially with the marvel dc dc stuff to be super representational oh,
2: yeah.
1: uh so you know a lot of browns and and yeah. um and darks and so i like to kind of give it a poppy uh mm-hmm. you know if something is exciting happening um, for the characters, maybe I'll throw in a pink background. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, that might be, I think they do that occasionally in Asterix, but, um, also just some of the comics I grew up reading, it was less, you know, you certainly see it with a lot of Schultz's Sunday pages. It was, um, you just played with color a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's a vibrancy to, to the color that you're using and the way you use color. That also reminds me of both Carl Barks and, and, uh, I don't know how much he colored, but, um, Also in Asterix, uh, that that approach to color, which is a very rich, vibrant, um, you know, approach to color that is it's not limited to the idea of a color theme necessarily. Uh, It's it's just a wide array of bright, bright color. And, And so the world that, you know, Kid Beowulf lives in and the world that Asterix lives in, these are, again, worlds of light in a way. Uh, there's there's a, a brilliance to them that is quite quite nice quite quite lovely oh, I appreciate and, it I,
2: yeah
1: I hope sometimes the coloring is not uh, too schizophrenic but um, I also try and keep in mind that uh, the my readership is probably nine and up so mm-hmm. you know it's really kind of to to make it engaging because the material can be um, I don't know it's a little it can be a little complex in terms of just what, what's going on between the character. Yeah. So I want to make sure that they're being pulled through the story. And, and I think, I think color can help a lot with that. Um, and, uh, but there are oftentimes I'll, i have, you know, discussions with other cartooning friends and they always talk about, you know, limited palette and focus on this. And, and there are ways that that can be done beautifully. But um, for now, for what I'm doing, I kind of like to, to throw in the, the bursts of color and and just have fun with it.
0: Yeah, well, I I, I appreciate that, and I think you're right. I think uh, this kind of palette does reach to a younger audience and reaches out to kids, and uh, and I think it's nice to see on the shelf as well in in the bookstore. You know, this this more brightly colored adventure story, which is one of the things I mentioned to you before, is that I think typically. And, and, you know, again, I'm just talking off the top of my head, uh, but I don't see a lot in adventure stories and in comic books of this, of, of your approach of the Asterix school, if you will, approach to adventure that, um, that you're offering. Jeff Smith certainly today is, is probably the exemplar
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: of that. And, uh, and there are a couple of others who followed, I think in his wake, but, um, you know the the predominant mode is one of darkness, really, in a lot of superhero comics. I mean, even even something, again, as far removed as I am from it. But even something like Superman, right, is no right. longer quite as bright and and sunny as it was in the fifties and sixties and and uh, and seventies. Even you've got something that's, in a way found significance, if you will, uh, in, in exploring the darker areas of the psyche and, uh, and the world as opposed to, you know, um, going in the other direction, which is a harder thing to do, you know, I think. And, uh, in this particular environment, I think it, it depends on what time you're in, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. The Frank Miller approach to things was an antidote, perhaps, to kind of DC comics that were a little bit antiseptic maybe in the 70s. And so you have Miller looking in a different way. I think today maybe there's an overabundance of that. And it's kind of nice to see something that is uh, going contrary to that. Uh, and
1: well, I, yeah, I appreciate that. And the other thing that I that I sometimes uh, try and balance is the being true to the Source material, since I'm using all these different epics, and and Beowulf in particular is pretty grim. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then some sure. of these other, I mean, the the nature of the epic hero is that they always end up dying. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And so that's the thing that I that I kind of go back and forth with is is a, making them accessible to a younger readership, but then also kind of lacing in some of those darker themes um, or more adult themes that that come through. From the source material because you know ultimately the thread of the kid beowulf series is that you know beowulf and grendel in my universe are twin brothers but as they grow up and travel to these different lands there it's slowly revealed to them their their true destiny which is eventually that of the original epic so they will fight so it does it does it will get grim um mm-hmm. but trying to um to sort of do a slow burn on that so the reader get it sort of learns that along the way as, as Beowulf from Rendell do. And and then, um, yeah, I'm not, I, I have ideas of, of what will happen in subsequent books, but, um, the one thing I'm always cognizant of is, okay, how do I, how do I frame this? So, um, I don't go too dark. Um, and, uh, I still kind of keep that fun adventure angle that, that, um, always drew me to comics to begin with.
0: Yeah. It, uh, so it- it particularly again, uh, the my experience with Beowulf now is the rise of El Cid, mm-hmm. and the rise of El Cid is it's a wonderful story. You know, it's a oh, thanks. A, it's a true story, right? Um, and and it, there's a lot of material there that that's historic, and and I wonder. So what? How's the audience reaction been from? Younger readers. I mean, you must have a span of readership, both from, as you were saying, ages nine and through teen years, but um, maybe some older readers too. So, uh, like myself, right? Right. Um, so, how how's the reaction been among those readers? And do you find that the younger readers keep up with the complexities of the stories you're telling?
1: Yeah, I think. Well, for each book, um, they uh, they they do get a little at least for this first trilogy a little more complex and so the the idea there is that the reader is is you know um, graduating so to speak from one you know sort of story of, like the first one is is just the origin story it's it's very has a kind of the most magical and fan, fantasy elements to it and um, and it's kind of the the big mythological strains. And then book two, the Song of Roland, is very much just an action adventure swashbuckler with mm-hmm. giants and elephants and roller coasters, and that one's just fun. And um, and then the third one, uh, the Rise of El Cid, has a little bit more political intrigue and um, still some some big action sequences, but it's it's much more of an internal story, like what what the main character Rodrigo, who becomes El Cid, what he goes through, and kind of him figuring out his moral compass. And then that's mirrored in with what Beowulf and Grendel do. So they definitely, and there's a little bit of romance that I throw in every time I do a, a, a a talk at a school, I can always gauge the age of the kids I'm talking to. When I, when I talk about El Cid and if I, and when I mention the romance, the younger kids just kind of, you know, stick out their tongue. (laughs) Then the seventh and eighth graders kind of throw out cat calls and stuff. So it's always kind of funny. Um, so uh yeah, and and I've had readers that have been with the series since I started it, mm-hmm. and kind of you know,' because these take a little while they and grown up with it and and I get lots of encouraging letters from them and their parents, and like they've you know, I got a text from a friend of mine who said she gave the the books to her nephew when he was you know ages ago, and he and he I guess was uh, sick and he was just rereading. Kid Beowulf again, and um, so I get a lot of notes about like that. That the kids kind of go back to it and reread it, um, and pour over it, and um, and that's really gratifying because um, they are intended to be you know read once and then and then more things hopefully reveal themselves um, through a second reading, uh, and ultimately you know uh, I can point kids back to the the originals because that's really what it is for me is I love these old stories and then introducing them to what i consider kind of the first superheroes is is another part of my mission statement
0: sure um for for this stuff oh yeah right because there's the in this case there is a uh uh, a lyric poem or an epic poem um uh, about el cid that is the basis upon which you built the story Mm -hmm. and the same is true with the song of roland or something yep Yeah. So, so the source material you're working on, so they serve, I mean, in, in the most obvious way, they, you know, to a librarian, for example, in a school, they, they serve as an introduction to, um, other material. That uh, the students may find of, of interest and uh, in a classroom, a teacher could use in a classroom, too. So so they work in that way. But most importantly, they work as really good comics and and really enjoyable comics. And uh, I was particularly in my experience reading El Cid was I was down with a cold. It was not long before we spoke. And, uh, so I would, this is one day when those rare days when I'm not able to do anything. So I, I had al Cid and, uh, tore through that book, boy. I, oh, I, you I, did? Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, a, it was a one day read for me. Uh, I couldn't put it down. Once I got into like, you know, the page 40 or page 50, it was impossible really, really to put down. It, it was, oh, wow. a, Thanks. Uh,
1: that, that one I'm always, uh, cause I tried to do. You know, sometimes as an author, you you have all these great ideas and you want to get them on the page, and and sometimes you think oh, maybe I've left too far here. I don't know if <laughs> like so. I feel like it works pretty well, but but I also know that it's 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 certainly more um, complicated than than the first two books. And uh, uh, so when I hear that that it, it works for folks, then I because I think that's the other thing about when we, when we're creating art, we really just don't know. Yeah. Are we trans? Are ideas transmitting properly to our right. to our readership? And you, that you sort of put it out there and cross your fingers.
0: Um, I, I know, and 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 you don't know. You really don't know until you have an editor look at it or something. And right. or in this case, you know, when I do work, um, my wife is not a comics reader, and she doesn't enjoy comics for the most part. So when I send her my comics via so email, and she gets a laugh out of them, I know I've reached an audience who is not deeply embedded in comics you know and and it's important to me to make her laugh so uh that's one of my barometers for the comic strip work that i do you know is it is it understandable and clear to somebody who doesn't read a lot of comics and uh is it does it reach her in whatever way i'm trying to to reach them whether it's you know through humor or, you know, I'm trying to say something clever or emotional or whatever. But, you know, finding an audience that you can rely on as a good barometer, that's hard because, yeah, you know, it's easy for us to get lost in ourselves. And in El Cid, you've got at least three different threads to the story, right? Um, yeah. They're going yeah. on. And they all come together at the end, uh, which is really neat. It's it's kind of fun the way they all come together. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's it's. F- I was imagining as I was reading it, um, if I was, you know, 10 or 11, would I be able to juggle all those threads and, and keep up with them? Um, you know, the way obviously an adult reader can, uh, cause you have a sense of the structure, you know, as, as, right, an adult. Right. as a kid, um, I w I wondered whether they do, I'm sure there are parts of the book that appeal to them more than other parts, you know, particularly the stuff between Beowulf and Grendel are right. you know, really uh, entertaining uh, because of their personalities.
1: Yeah. And that's why I always think the the strongest that I've done so far, certainly book one um, and then book two, I get, I know there's a certain age group of eight to 10 year old boys that have read it uh-huh. a dozen times over and that, and um, so, yeah, as I said, book three, uh, you know, I, I know the areas where I may have pushed you far. And so I'm sort of, keeping that in mind as I work on book four and, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, but that's, you know, as a creator, that's the thing that we're always struggling with. You want to, um, try new things and see what works. And, and then, um, the, the challenges <laughs> of sort of doing them in a, in a live space.
0: So, so as, a, as a reader, I'm, I'm really curious as to what book four is about now. Cause, cause it seems to me that you've, you've, ex- you've expanded with each book, your territory mm-hmm. and, each book is is has a larger worldview. So this next book, I'm I'm wondering, you know, which I appreciate, and actually I I really loved el Cid and I I really hope that that world keeps expanding and and keeps you you bring in you know, some very rich characters. And uh, so okay, where are we going with book four? I want
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. So so at the end of um, book three, there Beowulf and Grendel are at the end of the battle. They're they're. They're being carted away by some of the friends that they've made. And there's a little signpost and and it's alluded to through through the through their back and forth with these friends that they've made because they're basically these friends are pilgrims and they're making their way through uh, Spain on their way to um to Rome. And so that's that's where book four will will take place. And it's it's all about the founding of Rome and they meet another pair of twins, Romulus and Remus, and and that will have more of the magical elements because there will be the great they're they're great dire wolf she she wolf of a mother um and uh some other kind of we're, get, we're getting more into the to the mythological elements that were not as present as el sid because it's um it's more of a realistic kind of uh landscape but the idea the conceit is every country that they go to uh they sort of step into that country's epic golden age mm-hmm. and the story that inhabits and then and then. My hope is that I can return to those places because by the time I'm done with a book, I'm like, oh, I really like that character and that and that character and and I want to revisit them. And and um, I don't know about you, but stories are always sort of popping off in my head about, um, you know, side adventures and and um, and there's so many great stories that already sort of exist from the source material that I can dive back into. So for me, it's I sort of do the big fat 200 page graphic novels and then in between um i take little breaks and and do short stories that that fill out that universe and um and the short stories are sort of intended to be storytelling challenges for me uh, for mm-hmm. instance i did a, a story that was all about grendel and beowulf's mother and i wanted to try just a straight up pantomime comic so it's 30 pages no words i wanted oh, to see wow. that off and then i did another story focused on some of the knights that we meet in book 2 and it's it's basically a jailbreak story and each one is thrown in a different jail and and they sort of subsequently break out but i wanted to play with the idea of narration so each one is you're sort of in their head a little bit um, so
0: oh, wh- where would we find these or where are they on your site or are they on go comics or are they collected
1: so some of the short stories i have um uploaded to go comics so you, there's i think there's a tab that you could find the short stories and then i also have them on comiXology and um and eventually i'd like to collect them just as as a as a volume mm-hmm. um and i have one or two more that i want to do
0: before that volume would be would be ready um are but, these uh, self-published no, sorry, are they published by uh, andrews mcmill the you...
1: shorter stories are self-published um mm-hmm. and uh and i think when i when i have enough i will i will try and get them done either i'll continue to to self-publish, whether I do a Kickstarter or I'll, I'll pitch them to Andrews and McNeil and see if they want to do a side, side project. Um, it, the, the short stories, you, you really kind of have to be <laughs> an Uber fan, I think, to, to get some of the, cause they're, they're, they said, they're these side characters that, that are, you know, uh, we meet along the way. Um, and, uh, and so for me, it's really fun, uh, to play with them. And, and I think if you've, if you've read the series, then they resonate, mm-hmm. um, and it and it just kind of like fills in the gaps because I feel like every between every book there's like maybe three to six months of material that we just don't know what Beowulf and from Grendel are doing. So, sort of like those 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 um, you know, like the Star Wars movies. All the all the fun stuff kind of lives in the gaps
0: between episodes. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, I saw on Instagram recently uh, that you you have this wonderful new character, this young girl, nine or ten years old, named Booty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she is, she's based on, uh, what, a, a lost princess or, or something. Uh, yes, yeah, So name? she, yeah. so
1: she appears in, um, in book three and mm-hmm. she's part of the pilgrims that are, um, making their way Basically, the side the, the, there's the main story of Rodrigo, uh, right. Diaz, who is the fellow who will one day become El Cid. So we're, we're tracking him and his ascension. And then the other storyline is Beowulf from Grendel who get lost in Spain, um, and because Grendel sort of looks very different from all the other characters, they bump up against these pilgrims who think that they're their gods. So they're they're and Booty happens to be part of this little pack of pilgrims who are who've made their way from Britannia and they're made, and they're slowly trekking t- down to um, to uh, Italy uh, where they're they're gonna get together with their other pilgrims and and so anyway she obviously knows the Beowulf and Grendel. Uh, are lying um and that they're <laughs> really just there for the food and the gold and uh so she sort of rats them out um or susses them out through the course of the story and then it's revealed to the reader that she in fact is um in hiding herself and she is the princess Budica um and booty she's for great sure.
2: yeah she's Thanks. really great she it was really
1: fun to to put together and and um and i know and so she's one of those side characters who i know has a will have a set of 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 stories devoted to her um and that's the other thing that i've 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 found over the course of doing these stories like you know i think one could categorize these as adventures for boys because that um and 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 so much of this mythology and epic poetry and stuff is geared toward that category but there are so many smart um uh engaged readers who are girls who are looking for comics who who want Mm -hmm. you know by the advent of reina telgemeier and everything that she's done um, they're looking for these stories. And so it's very important to me to be cognizant of that and sort of throw in, um, uh, to make the, to make the, the, the stories, uh, have enough dimension that anybody could read it boy or girl mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and find somebody that they can glom, glom onto and, and carry them through the story. So booty was one of those characters. And I have another character in book four who is really terrific, uh, who I really like at least her name is Tarpeia, mm-hmm. and she's the catalyst of change in that book. And she's like eight years old and um and another firebrand of a character. So yeah, it's it's um uh those are just some of the things that are always sort of, you know, in the back of my head of like, okay, who my re- thinking of my reader and keeping them uh part of the story and um giving them some adventures uh with these side characters that that they might want to follow.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And and uh I loved Booty. I thought she was terrific. Right from the start, and uh you know that kind of um, cynical attitude, that very suspicious skeptical uh, attitude which um i I think was necessary to the story there. It was really good for you know Beowulf and Grendel to rub up against that as they were making their way across so and and um there was a behind the the Rise of El Cid, There's also a personal reason, I think, right? A personal connection for you to have done that story. Your your family roots are from Spain.
1: Yes, my father and, and that part of the family come from Spain, and um, and so that's you know drawing that landscape uh, I, I visited uh, and and um, as well and and sort of th- th- weaving in some of the family history because my last name Fajardo. Mm-hmm. The story goes. At least that um, there was. Uh, it comes from uh, a knight who fought um, around the same time period as as El Cid. Um, and since that time period, there was you know dominated by the Christians and Moors. The, the name Fahardo, it was he's named after a, a a Moorish general called Ibn al-Fahar. And this Christian knight killed the slayed the, the the Moorish knight and then was dubbed Fahardo or sort of, which meant killer of Fahardo of Fahar uh-huh. so which is really intriguing because you know the so much of that history back then is is um they talk about the re- reconquest of Christian Spain over Muslim Spain but you know when you think of the name al Cid, it comes from the the Arabic word al Said. so yeah. you know nothing is ever black and white there was certainly there was you know um they're not going to name their, their Christian hero. You know, it, it comes from this Moorish word and the same thing with my family name. And and so that was really intriguing and trying to build in some of that nuance of the the gray space that these, that this history lived in. Um, I tried to put that in the book. I don't know if I was successful, but it was important to, to show the reader that it's, it's, it's not this jingoistic place where there's good and evil um, that these, these motivations and, the decisions that the characters make are are born out of more nuanced things. Um,
0: as they are, as they are certainly now, you know. I mean, yeah. I think I think uh, in the last twenty years or so, we do tend to what simplify you know the the um the reality simplify the the experience of people and and you know particularly when we're trying to tell stories around those those issues um it is really easy to fall into these kinds of tropes or these stereotypes and you know um uh, i think a lot of uh uh thrillers that you might see that are based on you know the idea of terrorism and things like that or this kind of conflict that we've Fallen into uh, in the last twenty five years or so is is easy to it's easy to to fall into those you know use those stereotypes as a basis for a story. and i I think what's interesting in your book is that it's exactly that it's it's that these people are living side by side. They're real people, they have dimension. they're not caricatures and and you know they did they coexisted and have coexisted and <laughs> will continue to coexist and find a way to navigate that and live peacefully, uh, as most, you know, people want to. And, and, um, you know, so I think you've, you've, you have done that successfully and, and I think it's made the book richer for it. Um, we're introduced to, you know, several different cultures and several, several different, you know, um, the needs of separate civilizations that are bumping up against each other. And, uh, and you know, it, there's no easy right or wrong. It is more of a, a coexistence and trying to find a way for these competing civilizations to coexist. And uh, and that's the reality. You know, the reality is is that we're just trying to survive and yeah. find a way to co- to to live together. And
1: uh, I'm glad we, that it that it. Uh came across that way because that's the other the other big challenge of these these larger books is that there always eventually has to be the exposition dump so how do how do i do that <laughs> artfully so we're all on the same page so we know that this place that beowulf and grendel happen to be in that we know the the players and and the politics and and um uh so that 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 came across to you successfully is oh as yeah
0: yeah it did and and I really appreciated that and uh, you know it's interesting politics just you know seems to particularly during any kind of campaign season, which it always seems to be, it just seems to overly simplify and caricature everything and reduce everything, you know, uh, our discussions that should be open and, and nuanced and, and seen from a variety of points of view instead are simplified and viewed as caricatures. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, to you know those of us who are telling stories like this, um, to look for nuance and to to look for subtle subtlety and and to try to indicate that the find the humanity in all of this, you know, one way or the other, and uh, find the connections between yeah them.
1: well, you know, and going back to Schultz, you know that's something that we bump up against often is because uh, there is sort of one attitude about, you know, for instance, who Lucy is, you know yeah. she's the irascible fuss budget crabby you know, girl, but there are lots of strips where, where, you know, especially in the later years, she has a softer side. I mean, she's the one oh, who, who brings Linus back from the pumpkin patch at 3am right. in the morning and tucks him into bed. You know, she has a very, you know, she has a soft side that I think, you know, gets overshadowed by, you know, what we think of her. Um, oh, and yeah. he build that nuance into all of the characters, you know, the, the idea that that peppermint Patty is, is, um, you know just has her single dad and and uh you know he's both the mother and father that's really intriguing and yeah. um yeah he was really successful at at making these three dimensional cartoon characters
0: yeah and and, and if you're not going to last that long you're not going to be able to do a graphic novel And you're not going to be able to do a successful graphic novel and you're not going to be able to do a comic strip that lasts for 50 years without having depth to the characters. Because, you know, you're going to be exploring these these people, these individuals for all that time, whether it's, you know, two years working on a graphic novel or it's 50 years working on a strip in order for them to uh, to resonate and to keep your interest as an author. Right. You know, the right. characters have more to them that have to have more to them than just just uh, the surface. There has to be something more. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. It's really easy when one is writing about, you know, Schultz's characters to, you know, simplify them and, and say exactly that about Lucy. But you're right. Lucy is the one who brings Linus back. There is a softer side to her, um, although, it, it, you know, she does her best to conceal it most. Of the mm-hmm. time. Um, but particularly she's the one
1: who actually. Coin the phrase happiness is a warm puppy.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. that's right. Right. It's it's you know, despite all of her problems with Snoopy, you know, and her antipathy towards Snoopy in a lot of the strips, at the same time she is the one who hugs him and says, Happiness is a warm puppy. And so what do you what do you know about that? You know, people people are not so you know, they're not, they're, they can mystify you and, uh, and surprise you and, and Linus and Schultz does that. And, uh, any great author does. And, uh, certainly peanuts is filled of, with those kinds of surprises. You know, that, that just goes to show why you're still you know, one can still be interested in Charlie Brown flying the kite because Schultz always did leave open the possibility that something might happen. Something might, you know, surprise you. And and eventually Charlie Brown does hit a home run or wins the game. I remember that strip of him bouncing all over the place, you know. Right. Right. And uh, he does succeed. I mean, out of all of this failure, there's at least that one opportunity. Of course, he feels guilty about it afterwards because the kid who, who pitched the losing pitch. You know uh, what? I don't know whether they got. It's
1: Ann Hobbs, the yeah, great, right. grandniece of Roy Hobbs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then, right. yeah, they take he takes her out for Sundays because he, because <laughs> I think that he feels he can feel her pain because he's yeah. so acute to that. And then I think she reveals that she she just threw threw in a, an easy an easy pitch for him. Uh, so she sort of undercuts his success. Yeah, yeah well, as, as, you know, as Schultz would do, because Charlie Rink cannot win. Charlie
0: uh, Brown win. Yeah. Well, well, there, and there's what Charlie Brown finds out is there's no victory without some loss to someone somewhere, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that's the cost of victory is that somebody has to be defeated and, and, you know, and if you are a caring and empathetic individual, uh, obviously you are going to, uh, feel something for, for that loser. And Charlie Brown does, yeah. uh, You know, it's really kind of, kind of interesting that that's built into that. But, um, so when you are working on this, you're also going to work at the Schultz studio during the day. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, then you come home at night and you work on kid Beowulf. And, um, there are a couple of things, you know, on the one hand, the towering figure of Charles Schultz every day in your life is both intimidating, I'm sure. And also at the same time, inspiring.
1: Very much so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, yeah. And, and the biggest challenge is just finding that block of time to, to just get to my own work. So I've been, you know, getting up early in the morning before work, because actually one of the things I've, i found that I've had more success with is, okay, I want to, you know, the thing I want to do the most is just draw. So I'm going to do that first and then I'll mm-hmm. feel like I've accomplished something and then I go to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so far that that's, I've been able to, to whittle away at the, at the book. Um, But you're right. Yeah. It's so uh, intimidating to, to, to think about all that he achieved and then um, be in that space where I can, uh, you know, uh, work with that. And then, and then always, you know, the the back of your head is you're not, there's that nagging voice that we all have that says, well, you're not being, you're not drawing enough. You're not producing enough, you know, Mm -hmm. um so you're always comparing yourself to to that um but the one you know the the major thing I take away from from Schultz uh amidst all that he created is just his work ethic you know Mm -hmm. that's what's Mm -hmm. you know when you when you go to the museum one of my favorite parts of of that space is there's this massive wall that's um sort of in the great great hall there's this, this tall muraled wall and it's tiled with comic strips and they're about the same size that were printed in the in the paper you know maybe two by five inches Mm -hmm. and at top to bottom floor to ceiling um it's a mosaic when you step back you can see charlie brown racing up to kick the football but Mm -hmm. as you get closer you realize that that mosaic is built out of you know thousands of comic strips wow um and i think it's about 10,000 strips oh uh, my and this the stat is basically that's that's a decade of his work (laughs) that's all that's it so it would take you know four more massive walls like that to uh to get the breadth of everything he did so stepping back and and looking at that is just uh astounding um and so you know to for whenever i need a kick in the pants for myself it's just like okay well it's just uh, it's always some is always better than none. If you can get a little bit drawn today, then you're you're chipping away. and um and Sparky sort of every day went to his drawing board and looked at the canvas of his four panels and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, uh, dove in, so I kind of have to do the same thing.
0: So, yeah, yeah. You have to give yourself some space, you know, some give yourself some credit, too, because, you know, you've got a full time job and uh, that requires your attention and it's a demanding job. And uh, many of us do. Right. I mean, who are cartooning these days. It's not the same world that that Charles Schultz came up in. And uh, we don't, you know, have the opportunity, really, a lot of us to 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 give our full attention, you know, every day, day in, day out. Uh, to the drawing board the way we might like to uh, just because of the nature of, of the world we live in the circumstances we find ourselves in I think are quite quite different you know syndication used to be a way to uh, well first of all it was vibrant right there were mm-hmm. a lot of syndicates when Charles Schultz came up and there were a lot more newspapers and newspapers were healthy and you could make you know a, a significant income and and it's very different in the environment we're in today. Whereas most of us, uh, have some kind of alternative source of income and how much it demands of our time, uh, you know, varies from person to person. Uh, but it still requires a lot of our attention and, and those responsibilities, you know, take us away from the drawing board. It's, um, and at the same time, you've got, you know, family responsibilities, you've got a relationship, you've got, you know, pets and kids and, and right. all of those kinds of things you people have to deal with and, and, you know, uh, it, it can be very difficult to juggle all those things in the, in the, when your responsibilities are as divided up as they, they are today. Uh, so it's a, it's a different world. In, yeah.
1: In and everything's so bifurcated. sometimes I think about the way that, uh, I think Schultz was so successful, you know, his artwork notwithstanding. But I think when when he hit, there was there was a there was a perfect confluence of the strength of the new pa- newspapers, oh, of man. this new medium called TV mm-hmm. and of the, um, you know, the post-war years of uh, of sort of being able to create product relatively cheaply that could then disseminate said, you know, uh you know, in terms of licensing stuff. And and all those things hit, and they hit yeah. with this the very particular property. Um, and it was something that people just wanted to be a part of and have a, a, a part of themselves because they loved it so much. And I think that's... And I don't know if that will ever happen again because everything is so niche, you know? My work is very niche. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And then, you know, even um, uh, so many different... You know web comics are are slices of of this and that. and so it's it's um, it's really hard to think of uh, you know a, a comic strip or comic book IP that that will um, have the global reach um, that that peanuts did. And I, and I think that just could be the nature of the time we're living in now. Um, everything yeah. is, is vying for our attention.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I, I I agree with you. The The world we live in now is is exactly that. Everything is niche and, and broken up into these, com- it's compartmentalized in that mm-hmm. way. Media in post-World War II, there was a kind of, it, it was reaching a kind of apex, you know, mass media in the United States post-World War II, maybe worldwide too, I'm not sure. But at least in the United States, you had, everything was at Peak power in, in some sense. Uh, the, the impact of the newspaper, the impact of television that was growing, uh, the impact of popular music uh, and cinema. All of these things, you know, the mass media of that period of time. It was big enough, it was broad enough, and it was centralized enough that you could reach 200 million people or however many you might in the daily newspaper every day and have an impact on the culture that was, you know, you were not only hitting uh, children who read comic, the comics page, but you were also hitting, you know, grandparents who still read the newspaper and read the comics page and were devoted to it. So you were hitting a wide swath of the audience all at once. And, and, uh, everybody there, you know, at the same time, because everybody gathered around those media sources today, the media sources are so split up and so bifurcated, as you said, you know, uh, that, that no one person is, commanding that much attention at any single time. And that's both a gift. And it's also, um, it creates a a more difficult situation. I mean, certainly, you know, maybe the percentage of cartoonists who are making a living off of cartooning and a really good living off of cartooning, maybe the percentage is the same today. Maybe it's less. I don't, I don't really know. We know the cartoonists who are successful in the mid Mm twenties, century. Uh, we can look them up historically and we know where to find them. Um, we don't know the ones who were struggling and weren't successful. They didn't have an outlet. Uh, right. today, right. you know, certainly, you know, you could be somebody who is not incredibly successful, you know, witness, say myself, and, and you could, you know, have a website or you could be on go comics, or you could be someplace and not have a huge readership, but you're out there and, right. and yeah. somebody finds you. And so, uh, so you can be obscure and still be getting your work to some kind of audience somewhere. Whereas, it was more, maybe it was more difficult to do that in the, in the post-World War II period of the 20th century. But at the same time, it seems like those people who were sustaining themselves really did very, very well and reached very, very many people. Right. And, uh, and you know, yeah, Schultz and Hart and Ketchum and all those guys, um, particularly Charles Schultz though, they came along certainly the right time, uh, for that, you know, to catch that tidal wave as, as it you know, um, as it rose and, uh, well before it crashed. And, uh, uh, I hate it when a metaphor is too perfect. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs>
1: you know? well, no, the other thing I was thinking about, cause, cause you know, just the height of the, the importance of comic strips, yeah. uh, through the 20th century. Like, I mean, I don't know if this is apocryphal, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading that maybe it was, uh, FDR, but during like paper shortages, he would read the comics
0: out. Mayor Laguardia, yeah, okay, Mayor, Mayor, Mayor Laguardia from from um, Fiorella, I think, wasn't that his name, his full name? But somebody will know and write me probably. But uh, the Mayor Laguardia from from New York, yep, okay. A, okay. There was a paper shortage or a strike, and uh, he he did indeed read the Sunday funnies. And I think there's still if you go to YouTube. Some of those readings are up there, so you can actually hear him read uh, "Little Orphan Annie" and "Dick Tracy" to the audience.
1: Wow! Yeah, it's incredible. So, and you know, the the capstone of that is we have politicians reading us the comics, and now we have politicians who are cartoons.
0: (laughs) So yeah, right? I know, right? Oh my gosh. And I mean, perfect cartoons, but, um, but you you know, I think your point was, and I cut you off before you had a chance to say, it, and I apologize, but I think your point was, if I correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was that the impact of comics was such that people wanted to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. They were missing them. Yeah. They were a form of entertainment, just like soap operas were in a way you wanted to know what was going to happen in little Abner that day, you know? Oh, right. Yeah. You know, I, I need to know what's going to happen because, uh, this is our entertainment. I mean, the serialized comic strip, the gumps, right. Was, uh, I think the, the first really big family strip that was serialized like a soap opera and, and the audience, was left with a cliffhanger every day and they, they needed to know what was going to happen. And if they couldn't find out, you know, it was a big catastrophe. It showed up on the radio, you know, that, that day. And um, so there was this investment in comic strips uh, that there just isn't today. You know, that we just don't have the environment in which that kind of investment. Now, on the other hand, that investment exists in things like game of Thrones you know, yes. Uh, right. In in television properties and and uh, serialized dramas like like Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or 24 or one of those series, you know, uh, people get invested, they binge watch and and, uh, you know, they're dying to know what's going to happen next. You know, and um, so we've just turned our attention elsewhere. But pre-television comic strips really were a source of that. They 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 lost that post World War Two. Never really got it back in that extent, and thus the rise of the gag comic, right? Because you didn't need to be invested. You didn't need to follow it every day. You could pick up that gag comic anywhere and at any time and not be impacted by a loss of information. You wouldn't feel lost, you know? Right. Right, right which is kind of what makes it hard for me to say, go back to say Spider-Man or something like that and read it now, because I feel like there's a whole generation of stuff that I missed out on that I'm like, Oh man, you got to clue me in. I'm totally lost here. What's going <laughs> on? You know, I have no idea. And, and when you're going to spend three bucks on a comic book, it is, or four bucks or whatever it is now, you know, you look at it and go, nah, I think I'll buy an older one. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's it's, to it's
1: to. tough. Although I do remember when growing up, the, uh, you know, uh, I got into X Men and and mm. the 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 lure of the back issues, you know, oh, the yeah. fact that you could, you know, kind of piece together the history of said character and 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 like you, I was a Spider Man fan too. So, the, but there was yeah, there was just no way I could, I could contend with 50 years of the the backstory. So you kind of pick and choose and and um, uh, fill in those gaps where you can, mm. um, and then and then you discover those great artists that you decide oh, yeah. to follow from from uh, book to book.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, uh, I mean that, that for me, ultimately it's, it comes down to the artists and the, and the, uh, more so than the characters anymore. It's just, you know, <laughs> what artist am I going to follow? But, you know, I mean, that's maybe that's a, a, an oddity among artists, right? We, we just follow other artists, but, um, that's what counts to me. And that goes back to, you know, your original point your original thesis was you know that the, the voice of the cartoonist and when we say cartoonist that person who both writes and draws who cartoons right well right. uh, does neither one that well but does them well enough to cartoon um you know is is uh, the person that we're interested in and uh, uh, and we follow them for their singular voice um yeah yeah you know and uh, and um That's what makes it, uh, you know, an art form that is stamped with the mark of personality, like all great art forms are, rather than committee. I completely agree. Yep. Yeah. So, like the work of Charles Schultz. So, are we getting close to the point where you have to...
1: Probably. I think that's... I don't know what better button we could put on this discussion than that.
0: Yeah, right, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I guess not. Um, so, when do you think Kid uh, Part Four, uh, Book Four of Kid Beowulf, will be available? When, when, when do you see that happening? Uh, that's
1: a great question. I'm about um, uh, I'm circling uh, hundred pa- page one hundred and thirty. I'm going to try and pencil that this weekend, and then I have like another sixty odd pages to do. Um, and I'm you know in that pencil, ink, and color, and and the finish work. I am hoping that that I will. It will 2020 is the year, and I'm going to probably release it mm-hmm. um, perhaps on my Patreon in episodes mm-hmm. there, uh, mm-hmm. beginning in 2020. And then it will eventually be collected as a, as a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's sort of the game plan. And then because uh, I always feel like I should have the, the, all the work done first before I start to
0: mm-hmm.
1: put it out into the world. Um, oh, sure.
0: Yeah. So Uh, uh, do you have a contract for it yet or, or, or is that right now it's just Patreon is the way to go until you foresee something else? Yeah, for
1: now it's going to be the, the Patreon and, um, and that's sort of going back to the whole notion of everything's sort of bifurcated. So I feel like, okay, well, that's another avenue that I can sort of help that can help, you know, keep the, the comics being produced. And, um, I haven't, I've sort of relaunched it, um, and I'm sort of just building up the content that, by the time I get to the the point where the comic itself will be ready, that hopefully you know my readers will sort of port over to mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you know I have other projects that I wanna I want to tackle that are not within the the Kid Beowulf universe. Oh, so
0: really, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what do you what, In, in what, what kinds of projects? So if you can give me a very quick overview, I, I
1: know you have. Well, to know. The, the next book after. This one, the Tarpeian Rock, uh, will be a complete shift of gears, and and um, I it will be sort of like a historical memoir of my um, grandfather father's um, escape of fascist Spain. Um, oh wow, that sounds great! Spanish Civil War. So I have lots of material um, from recordings that I've made with my family, and and reading these these historical books, and trying to get a sense of that that world
0: oh man that uh, sounds fantastic oh I'm, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that me me too i think it'll be you know how
1: sometimes they're just those stories that are in your bones well that one's literally yeah. in my bones so i need yeah. to get it out <laughs>
0: so yeah sure sure
1: um and i think that'll be a nice kind of uh you know diversion and then i'll come back to to kid beowulf and because because that one's sort of a you know just sort of uh the the story that i'm always gonna I think gonna come back to um you know, if I could, if I could have the sort of career that someone like Stan Sakai or Jeff Smith have and oh, yeah, just, yeah. you know, continue to do their work, mm-hmm. that would be ideal. Um, and tell their story. Uh, mm-hmm. I love, I love their, what they've been able to do. So I look to them as people I'd like to emulate. Um,
0: those are pretty good people to emulate, you know, pretty, pretty great exemplars there of, of how to, to sustain a career and, and be creative and remain true to your voice.
1: Um, yeah, no, there, uh, there, there's just so many great, Cartoonist, and uh as we said at the, the top of the show is just so uh such a vast history to dive into so i'm yeah. um uh so they always yeah reading the stories old stories just feed into the new stories so
0: yeah wow that's great so so we have that to look forward to we have both kid book four of kid beowulf and and we have this memoir uh about the spanish civil war and um uh that's that's fantastic. Um, definitely Looking forward to both books, and and uh, hoping they come out soon, sooner rather than later. But uh, <laughs> you want both. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lex, that's um, the other I thing about
1: comics that we didn't touch on, but I think is everybody knows. It just it, they take so damn long.
0: Well, I was going to say that at, at one point. I was looking at at kid at uh, the Rise of El Cid. said it's two hundred and twenty pages long. And I don't know how long it took you to do it, but two hundred and twenty pages takes a long time to put together. And um any new work that you're you're working on, you spend hours upon hours. and they're so quick to read, you know? I know I know that's sort the thing of, we
1: always find oh And you want, as you know, as a as an author, you want that flow. You want your reader not to sort of struggle with the page maybe they'll revisit a page that they liked but you know first and foremost it's like get them to enjoy the story and not even be cognizant of right the the work behind it um
0: right. that that's the ultimate you know that is you don't want them to think about it they're, right. they're reading the story and they're caught up in the story and the story carries them along and then you can go back to it but the same thing is true of a film people work on a film for years upon years and uh, from you know the the first time of, of working up a property or a pitch an idea to the realization of the film how many years might that take it sometimes can take decades and a film what in 90 minutes and it's over with and right uh, of course it's always there and you can always go back to it but you know the amount of time it took to make and the amount of time it takes to enjoy there's nothing commensurate about the two and uh, but yeah right. it's, it's, and, then, and then you it's
1: think a, about all the people behind the scenes that are that cool. are working to create that that film and that's why i always get so frustrated when i you know you talk about game of thrones but these petitions where people want you know to to have the the last few episodes rewritten or redone like the the audacity that these people have to to sort of like oh thousands goodness. of people worked on that and yes you didn't like the story but but you have to honor the work the creative work that went into it and um uh, be respectful of, of that. The same goes for, for the comics that we do. Everybody's so quick to, um, to throw criticism at things. It's just like back and, and, um, just, you know, think about what you're going to say and, um, the amount of work that went into that person creating this thing for you to hopefully enjoy, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think that's one of, I think I I heard about your experience go comics, uh, listening to comic lab one time. And initially there was a lack of understanding of what you're doing. I don't know what the reaction is now, but you know, internet trolls are out there uh, waiting, you know, for, for what right. stuff out. And, and really they, the audience today has, you know, immediate gratification at their fingertips. And so, and this true of all of us, not just those people out there, but I, you know, I know when I'm watching a TV show, I can kvetch just like anybody else. Never, never mind how much work w- is there on the screen for you to, to take in. It, t- it takes an enormous amount of work to put the stuff out and the audience just doesn't care. You know, right. the audience really, the, all they care about is being gratified. And, and again, you know, I'm part of the audience too. Um, it's, it's, it, it It really requires that, that, you know, we stop and and not take these things for granted. And I think, unfortunately, we do, you know, because it's so accessible. It's so easy to dismiss that which does not gratify immediately or complain rather than critique, you know, right. Uh, And. Instead of like, you know, taking something and realizing, wow, you know, no matter whether you like this or not, somebody really put some effort into this to put it out and somebody's taking a risk by putting it out. You know, they're risking their, their personal well-being, their their mental health by putting it out in the world. and uh, And maybe they're putting it out in the world. You have to sort of kind of take it into the context of the world they're putting it out into too. You know, I mean, right. sometimes somebody is an amateur and they're just putting something out there. Um, To test the water and maybe they want to make a connection with somebody else who's going through the same thing and to, you know, rake them over the coals because they're not, uh, you know, Neil Adams or somebody, you know, maybe completely out of place. You know, that kind of critique may be totally misplaced for somebody whose, attempt, whose goals are something entirely different or his or experience level. But the audience doesn't seem to wait Uh, or to judge there's no nuance there's no right no as we mentioned
1: before you know even in terms of schultz like comics is a it's a long game and it takes a long time to figure out figure it all out it's the mechanics of it and then your own ability to draw and then you put those things together so
0: um, it takes a long time to figure it out it's surprising how long it takes and uh you know dave sim said it was what ten thousand bad pages before you, or a thousand bad pages before you get to, yes. you know, a good one. And, and, you know, while you may think, you know, and this is, I know this is true of myself, you know, I always thought I could draw, you know, uh, but you know, it takes that many pages before you really start to have a feeling f- where you've, you've reached a certain critical mass, you know, and everything is working and, right. and working together. Cause it's really complicated. It's really complex. It's a complex endeavor. Mm-hmm. and uh, so many things to be aware of while you're working on it, to get it working. All all working at the same level is is a task, that's for sure, and it takes time. In a world where we don't have a lot of time to give, right?
1: Right, right, and that's the other, or at least that, so we perceive. Um, <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that we all is. have plenty of distractions that take, it, yeah. take us away from
0: what we ought to be uh, doing. <laughs> so it's true but but um at the same time there's there's a lot out there to appreciate too uh there's a lot of stuff yet to be discovered that's uh really worth our time and worth an investment and uh, it's just trying to find the time to find it all and, and get to it all and do our own work too right. uh, at the same time because doing our own work takes a lot of a big chunk out of the day yeah
1: well i appreciate that you uh took the time to to read um my work and and because uh, that's that's uh it's much appreciated
0: so oh man I, you know uh, it was a joy it was a real joy and i'm looking like i i'm a fan and now i'm looking forward to book four and i'm I'm looking forward to the next book too uh i think it's it's you know it's kind of like asterix i think this is kid beowulf is a story that we can enjoy developing over a number of years and uh, i hope it lasts that long you and me both <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, then I won't keep you any longer. And uh, why don't we uh, why don't we say farewell for the moment? And uh, and we will connect. Send me that list of cartoonists, and um, let's connect again uh, real soon. You know, sometime in the next couple of months, let's have another chat because I, I, I really find these really rewarding, Lex. This is a
1: oh yeah, me a, too. It's great to talk shop. Um, so uh, I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I appreciate your time and and your input and your your interesting insights and in, and your scholarship as well. Because like we are like minded in our appreciation of comics.
1: That must be the Binghamton air.
0: Yeah, out. maybe so. <laughs> so. You know, the other cartoonist I forgot to mention. Uh, I can't believe I forgot to mention John Marshall, who does. Oh my b- gosh, yes, John Marshall, John Marshall uh, right? yeah.
1: terrific guy. You know, yeah. he's he's one of those fellows. Uh, I won't keep you too much longer. But when I was was. Figuring out how to cartoon, and I was in Binghamton. Uh, I, you know, somehow connected with him, and he just took so he was so generous with his time, and uh, just showed me a studio and what he was doing with Blondie and the other things. and And he's got a just a terrific classic, you know, approach to, oh, yeah. to comics, and and um, yeah, just just a terrific guy, and I really appreciated all that he all the time he took to to help a young cartoonist.
0: That's great to know. Is he still in this area?
1: I believe so, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I'll have to look him up. Um, I'd love to get him on the show actually.
1: Oh, he'd be a great one cuz he, yeah. you know, he's one of those
0: syndicate bullpen guys. You know what? I I think uh, that's a great one. I I got to reach out to him. That would be a really good person to have on the show because he's been here forever and mm-hmm. he is really Probably of all of us, the most visible right now in terms of, you know, he's out there in the daily newspaper every day. And so uh, Blondie is certainly, a you know, a warhorse, And uh, his style is almost, you know, it's he's got it down to a, a T. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, you know, Chick Young style. It's amazing. Um, anyway, yeah, he's the other Binghamton cartoonist. I was like afterwards, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot John Marshall. Wow Uh, But yeah uh, We we do have a rich tradition here I think Of growing cartoonists And and appreciating cartooning It must have something to do With the weather Yeah
2: That's
1: right We're staying in Reading all our books (laughs) Exactly
0: (laughs) All righty, Lex Good talking to you man You too uh, um, I'm going to turn off The recording button so if you want to find great cartoonists, there's no place better to look than Binghamton, New York, Binghamton, Endicott area. <laughs> it's amazing to think of of uh, all of the things we produce. We we seem to grow cartoonists out of the ground here in upstate New York, and uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's as rich a place for cartooning as any I know of, including uh, perhaps Columbus, Ohio, which seems to be one of the great centers of cartooning these days. But Hey, uh, wouldn't you know, you know, in our little enclave up here, we've got some great names and uh, some, some real contributors to the field. So uh, that's something I'm proud of, you know, and I think Johnny Hart ought to be proud of it, too. So uh, wherever he is, uh, up there in the sky someplace. Hey, here's an idea. You can show your support to a Binghamton, Johnson City, Endicott Vestal cartoonist by the name of Lex Fajardo, uh, one of the many... Uh, descendants, if you will, of Johnny Hart and his school of cartooning here in, in this area uh, by going to kidbeowulf.com That's K-I-D-B-E-O-W-U-L-F.com or shopping at your local independent bookstore and picking up one of uh, Lex's three wonderful graphic novels around the Kid Beowulf series. Uh, they're terrific. I highly recommend them. You're really going to enjoy those books. So uh, look for them today. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned my dog, Duncan. Duncan is one of our two dogs, Duncan and Zuccaro, both of whom are around 10 years old. And Duncan took ill in early June with pancreatitis, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, the inflammation of the pancreas. And it uh, can come on quite suddenly, unbeknownst to my wife and I. And uh, he's been recovering from it ever since. And uh, it can be brought on by diet. It can be brought on by something like the pokeweed, which we talked about during the episode. Uh, who knows? You know, it's it's hard to know for sure uh, what brought it on. But nevertheless, we've been treating him for it since. And, I, and it's the kind of thing that... Um, uh, it, it dissipates over time and it takes a little while to recover and there can be recurring incidents and Duncan's always had a sensitive stomach anyway so just to let you know he's recovering he's still kind of tentative when it comes to eating and uh, we're just taking it slow with him but he's doing okay you might actually hear him bark in the next uh, there's a lot of activity going on outside today and uh, there's a tree being cut down unfortunately and uh and so he's uh, responding to that along with Zook. and so you might hear them, and they sound pretty healthy. So what about that earth-shattering announcement I alluded to earlier in the episode? It has to do with my own work, uh, Some something I've talked about a little bit or hinted at uh, here and there over the course of a number of episodes over the last year or so and uh finally uh it's making its debut uh it's a comic strip a web comic it's called spiking the lens and you can find it at spikingthelens.com and uh, that title is a reference to acting and to the world of filmmaking and it's about Uh, Basically, it's about a, you know, it's a screw-up. When an actress or an actor looks at the lens uh, without direction and breaks the fourth wall, that's called spiking the lens. So as you might gather from that, this is a comic strip that is indeed about acting. It's about actors, and it's about the people who work in and around filmmaking and, and TV series and, and uh, live and try to live and struggle to live in uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood, movie town, Tinseltown, you name it. Uh, They're trying to get by day in and day out and trying to break into the big time. And so it's really about a group of people, three young women who share an apartment, two of whom are actresses, one of whom is a screenwriter. Uh, and uh, a would-be, sort of has-been agent who runs a laundromat. I uh, sort of been thrown out of the movie business after a number of years and wants to get back in. And his partner in the laundromat, uh, an elderly woman who was once a B-movie actress in the 60s and 70s, who has a long list of credits and stories to tell. It's a fun strip, and I hope you'll check it out at spikingthelens.com. If you don't go there, follow it on Instagram three times a week at Grogan Jeff. G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. I hope you will follow uh, because uh, I'll post it uh, on a regular basis at least three times a week. So check that out. I'd be really appreciative if you did. In the meantime, uh, another thing you can do for this podcast is rate it over at uh, Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. Give it a five-star rating. Write up a little review. It helps draw attention, helps draw uh, listeners to to the podcast, and uh, might intrigue uh, another cartoonist or two to listen in. And speaking of that, look for our next episode to feature Dwayne Abel, the cartoonist behind the family-friendly comic strip Zed, which has been around for a long, long time now, as well as... A motivational speaker for uh, elementary schools and others, Dwayne has carved out a really interesting career path for himself, as a, not only as a cartoonist of note, but also as a, a terrific speaker and uh, one who really spreads the gospel of cartooning to a whole generation of of uh, interested and and enthusiastic young people uh, in schools all across the country. And uh, so check that out. It's really going to be interesting. Dwayne is also a great connoisseur and and collector of original comic art, and he's got a collection of... uh, hard-to-find and relatively obscure cartoonists and comic strips uh, and a wealth of knowledge at his fingertips about the history of comics and, and classic comics in particular that I hope to glean for an interesting talk and, and also just for my own edification, I hope to, to learn a lot from Duane uh, during this discussion, which we'll be having in a, a week or so. So look for the episode to be up sometime in mid-July i'm really excited about it and i think it's going to be a, a really interesting and and unique discussion uh, around a, you know a host of different topics that we we haven't touched on so far so there's a lot of ways to make a life for yourself as a cartoonist and uh Dwayne, i think car has carved out quite an interesting uh way to go for himself and is quite successful at it so let's uh so look forward to that You can preview that episode by going to Dwayne's website, quirkycomics.com. That's C-O-R-K-E-Y comics.com. You can check out some of his videos, look at his comics, get an idea of who Dwayne Abel is, and I think that you'll find he's a very interesting guy, and it's going to be an excellent episode. It won't be too long before we're entering the dog days of summer. It's July. Things are starting to heat up. Well, like look at Europe, right? The uh, temperatures there have skyrocketed. The hottest, uh, hottest temperatures ever recorded over there in the summer. And uh, boy, people are looking for some relief. And uh, if you're like me or Charlie Brown and Sally, that relief's not likely to come from getting on a bus and heading to camp someplace. Uh, more likely uh, I'm going to find some relief on the back porch or on the stoop reading a Fawcett Peanuts paperback from back in the day. Uh, flipping through one of those takes me back to being a kid again. Those carefree days when, uh, when we didn't have a lot of concerns or worries and uh, surrounding yourself with Snoopy and Charlie Brown, Linus and Lucy too. Uh, that's where I'll be. So uh, take my advice, uh, head on over to eBay, pick up a couple of those books and see if it doesn't do... Uh, do something for you and until next time thanks for listening